This is Open to Hope Radio, featuring Dr. Gloria Horsley and her daughter, Dr. Heidi Horsley, coming to you on behalf of the Open to Hope Foundation, dedicated to those who are looking for hope after loss. Now, here's Dr. Gloria. Welcome to the Open to Hope Show. I'm your host, Dr. Gloria Horsley, with my co-host, Dr. Heidi Horsley. Well, good morning from California, Heidi, and good afternoon from California. New York, right? Yep, New York, New York. And then our guest is from L.A. Hmm, yeah. Well, we've got a great show today, and we want to get right into it, as Heidi and I were talking a little bit earlier, because Heidi and I both like cognitive behavioral therapy very much, and we have an expert on cognitive behavioral therapy today, and somebody who is bereaved himself, which I think, you know, kind of helps that you've been there, right, Heidi? Absolutely, and his name is James Crabio. And I love, Mom, that he just said right before the show, yes, I do cognitive therapy, and I have my own version, and I'm going to talk about how it pertains to grief and loss, which I love. And I, I can't wait to, ha- to hear how he is going to talk to people about how not to get stuck in their pain. And he is also the author of a book called Troubled Childhood, Triumphant Life, Healing from the Battle Scars of Youth. Yeah, which is a, sounds pretty intriguing there. Well, when I uh, asked uh, James for some information, he was saying that about his own losses, he was saying that he uh, had, you know, quite a year in 1908 because his uh, mother died as ex-wife and his mother-in-law. Wait, so, 1998? I mean, 2008. What did I say? Oh, 2008. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think that's right, isn't it, James? That's correct. Your mother died of a broken uh, after complications from a broken hip, and uh, and uh, your what did your uh, ex-wife die from? Uh, she died from cancer and had metastasized throughout her body. Wow! And then your your mother-in-law. Hmm. Wow! What a year! Yeah, it was it was quite the year, quite the painful year. Well, let's talk about a little bit about your theories. You said that you do a lot of grief work, and you have kind of a different take on cognitive therapy. You want to talk about it a little bit? Well, I think a lot of times that that aspect, the grief and loss, is taken out of it. And this is something that I work with, particularly as I'm working with adults who have had trouble with their childhood. And uh, so in, in, in my work, in my current work, I talk about that. I believe that, first of all, life is a series of lessons to be learned and losses to be grieved. And I make that point very clear in my writings and in my own life. I think that people, particularly if they've had struggle, for example, with a troubled childhood or with parents, they have this notion that somehow their parents are going to morph and they're going to become these loving, nurturing adults that they've always yearned for during childhood. And so troubled kids, they perform to please in order to gain the validation and love of their parents. When it's not forthcoming, they tend to turn their anger on themselves. And what I talk about throughout my, my work and throughout my life is, again, that we need to grieve the full impact of what happened to us and to release it, mm-hmm. regardless of whether it's a loss of a child, whether it's a loss of some other loved one in our family, whether it's the loss of our childhood, no matter what it is, if it's a loss of uh, our, um, our youth and the prowess of youth, uh, we need to experience the impact of what that is 
and learn how to release it. Now, yeah, I just wanted to say, um, with grief and loss, do you find that uh, people can be stuck in past pain and therefore can't grieve the current loss? Yes, because it's cumulative, I believe, that uh, one trauma, one blow um, impacts the other one. And sometimes people don't. I'll have uh, patients come in and they'll say, well, you know, uh, I just I just didn't deal with it. I just got over it. You know, I just, you know, there's a sense in which they just uh, say, well, you know, I, I don't deal with the past. I didn't feel I, I needed to deal with it. And any, any loss that's unresolved from the past, I believe, will rear its ugly head and typically will come out in certain behaviors in, our, in, in the here and now. That's what I'm concerned about is that people become more conscious about what's going on in their lives. Pain tends to be cumulative. We have a series of blows that we experience. And if we don't deal one, uh, it'll come out in the next one and the next one until we begin to process our pain from the past. Well, sometimes people, you know, feel like um, there's something wrong with me. I should be moving along in this or something. Um, what, do you, what do you suggest to people that are stuck in their pain? Well, I suggest, first of all, that they understand that uh, processing their pain takes time, that there is no set time limit on how long people go through a grieving process. Mm-hmm. Um, however, there are times when, like I said, people either avoid their pain or they tend to victim posture. And we don't want to be on one side of the spectrum or the other. I think it's important that people have support, that they have emotional support of friends and family, uh, that they acknowledge and embrace their pain rather than trying to minimize its significance, uh, that individuals refocus their attention on activities that that bring them uh, pleasure during the time that they are experiencing their pain. But I think the most important thing is they acknowledge it, they embrace it as it is, and they seek support and help in, in the process of dealing with it. So, to, you know, this victim, victim posturing, I think that's really interesting because um, I had never heard of it framed like that of you, Heidi. No, I love that. And the thing that I think is interesting about it is if you're posturing as a victim, say if I am posturing as I'm still a bereaved parent, you know, and, and life is very bad and this is where I am, and then say I my husband dies or something, I mean, you know, that's really tough. Now where am I? Well, you know, it's a very difficult thing. Obviously, when you when you lose a parent or you lose any you know, loved one in your, your family, uh, what I look for in terms of victim posturing is when people are not processing their pain, but they're looking for validation from external validation exclusively. They're not working. They're not doing the work of actually grieving, that they're clinging on to others to provide uh, exclusively to provide that kind of support, that they're maybe whining about it, they're repetitiously going over the same ground, but yet they're not making uh, steps in a particular direction. For example, I might give a, a, a parent a homework assignment or an adult a homework assignment to do in reference to, uh, you know, overcoming their grief. And when they're not doing their assignments... When give, us, give us an assignment. What's a, what's, what kind of an That's assignment? That's what I'm wondering, James, because what, what I see a lot is that 
is people, and I initially did it when my brother died, that they keep going over and over and over and over the way that somebody died, and they just can't seem to move beyond that part. So, yes, what are things that you would do to get people to move on? I'm curious, I mean, to, to help them along that path. Well, I can tell you what I did. Uh, my mm-hmm. father died in, about, I think it was 1991, and uh, when I got back to Chicago, he was in Orlando, and he was just, uh, I, was, I was doing great. You know, I thought I was just doing great. And as you're probably w- well aware of, that sometimes it takes, you know, two or three months before the, 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 you know, the, the grief really hits. I found that doing writing, I had written a letter uh, obviously didn't deliver to my father about all of the uh, issues that I had in my life, uh, positive things and negative things. I wrote it from the heart. It was not written from the neck up. It was all emotionally based. And I wrote that letter, and it took me three days, three settings to, to, to actually write it. It was extremely painful. I followed that up with a letter where I asked my father, I I wrote a letter the way I would have wanted my father to respond to me, to what I had said to him. I found it extremely therapeutic. So I wrote a letter back to me the way I would have wanted my father to address the concerns that I had, either the uh, positive reminiscing that I did or negative comments. Now, now, what do you do with those? Do you just do them for yourself? Would you have other people read them, or would you keep them? Or, you know, I know some people talk about doing stuff like that and then burning them and making the ash uh, for the and planting a rose bush and using the the letters for an ash or something like that. Well, some people have those, you know, those rituals that they want to do, and I think it's wonderful if they have a way that they want to. Do I think with me? I just uh, finally at some point I I kept them and then I just shredded them uh, when I was mm-hmm. done. But I, I think those are wonderful ideas that people have when they want to um, you know let let it go. And uh, so I would I would say that's that's perfectly perfectly good. Whatever people want to do when they come into my office, some people want to share their letters. Some people don't. Um, I didn't want to share mine. I didn't share it with anybody. Mm-hmm. But I think if people willingly want to share them with a confidant, I think that's... But but I like the idea that you don't have to, too. I mean, not everything has to be out there. You know, the, uh, you had something in, in some ideas that you had about, about loss, and I, Heidi and I were really struck by the one where you said, try not to fight my way out of depression, it will lift. I thought that was really interesting. Because uh, we're not supposed to be depressed. Yeah, you know, especially around the holidays, people have these expectations that they're not supposed to be depressed. And yet we have mm-hmm. this commercial, this endless thing that starts at the beginning of October or middle of October about the commercialism of, of the holidays. But I mm-hmm. think, yeah, expectations play a great role in these. But I think the other part of it is the law of reverse effort. The more we force ourselves to get rid of something, the more we actually end up hanging on to it. It doesn't matter whether it's anxiety, whether it's depression. If we fight our symptoms, we're more likely to be glued to them. And that's including physical pain, I've found. When people, I tell them, you know, let your pain be, just go with it, 
as opposed to trying to fight with it or fight with emotional symptoms associated with it, uh, they typically understand that there's a diminishing effect to those symptoms. So, yeah, how do you know the difference between depression and grief? How do I know which is? I mean, you know, am I depressed or is this normal grieving? Well, I think depression is more of like a clinical term. I think actually what, you know, uh, depression is just a bunch of sadness and hurt and disappointment. Uh, And it's associated with grief. I think we know that, I believe we know that we're depressed or really, really sad when we, uh, the question is, you know, to the point of where it just shuts us down, where we're unable to function in a way that we really want to. If we're staying at home, we don't want to get out. We don't want to get out of bed. We don't want to go to the grocery store. We don't want to visit friends. Uh, then we know that probably our grief has gotten to the point where it's really shutting us down and we feel frozen by it. And uh, in, those, in that sense that we need um, additional assistance or support either through therapy or through friends. Mm-hmm. And you, you talk about a friend. I used to have a, work with a guy who's a very well-known therapist, and he said if somebody had three friends that they could tell everything, they wouldn't need anybody else. <laughs> I thought that was kind of interesting. They would, they would need a therapist. Yeah, exactly. He called it rent-a-friend. <laughs> you, know, right. you know, James, I, I also like your, your uh, thoughts on learning to self-nurture. I think that is so important, and you, you talk about treating yourself the way you would a friend. Yeah, just, to, just I think that's such an important thing to tell people. We need to self-soothe. We need to learn how to give ourselves good messages, good thoughts, self-soothe, take care of ourselves as we would somebody else, support ourselves in a time of grief. I think that's really important. Um, I had just taken my wife to the doctor. She had had gallbladder surgery just mm. recently within the last week, and uh, she was also experiencing uh, quite a bit of anxiety, and uh, when she left, the doctor said to her, it was something that I already knew, and he said, you don't take care of yourself very good. You need to take mm-hmm. care of yourself better. Uh, mm-hmm. Because right now, we're dealing with caretaking for her father, and uh, you know she's quite worried about um, what's going on there. So taking care of ourselves is extremely important in nurturing and whatever that means for people. If it means, you know, going to a pedicure, if it means uh, going to a, a, a football game, what, whatever it means for people to, to learn to take care of themselves. Because what I find is caretakers sometimes don't have good boundaries. They're, they're, very, good at, they're very good at caregiving for other people. But when it comes to looking at their own needs, they feel pretty empty, pretty alone. You know, I was just thinking about your wife because uh, her mother, is it her mother that died two years ago? And now she's taking care of her dad. So he's grieving the loss of his spouse after two years, which is, you know, wow, that's a lot. And then it's her parent and she's taking care of dad. And wow, I think there's a lot of people out there listening to this show that could resonate with that. After the loss, it's just not you. I mean, this dear guy has been married, was married for 60 years, and he looked at me and he said, um, how do I deal with this? And I said, you know, it's not, you know, I, I can't tell you because you've been married for so many years, but I know this is really difficult, and I know it's not, not going to be, it's, you, you, it's never going to go away, and the pain is always going to be there for you. Bless his heart, he keeps moving on, you know, after 60 years of marriage, and 
try and plug along. Right. After Scott was killed, uh, there was a therapist. Um, yeah, I worked at a hospital, and uh, there was a psychiatrist there, and I said, and his brother had died, and he did a lot of uh, presenting on it. He was quite famous. And I said to him, how does the therapist grieve? And he said, because, you know, you're used to helping other people. I was um, a therapist there. And he said, long and endlessly, just like everybody else. <laughs> mm, I like that. So that's exactly that's exactly the point. There's there's nothing that we have, uh, you know, that excludes us from the normal process that everybody else goes through in in terms of the grieving process. And you know, the body knows how to do it. If we relax and let it happen, grief has happened forever. So uh, you just have to, as you say, uh, don't try to fight it. It'll lift. Well, James, thank you so much for being on the show today. And tell people how they'll get a hold of you and get your book. Uh, your book is fascinating, uh, certainly information for another show on a troubled childhood and how to deal with it. How, how do people find you? The best way to find me is through my website, which would be scottsdaletherapy.net. And uh, you can find me on there. And my book is available at... Uh, Barnes and Nobles or Amazon.com, most in most bookstores. And you're in uh, the Scottsdale area, Arizona. So, you, and you have a private practice, so people could contact you there. They can contact me through my my practice, and uh, yes, contact me there. Just uh, call me. My number is, and my also my uh, email address is on my website. Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you again for being on the show. And uh, thanks for all the work you're doing. Thank you so much thanks, for having me on. And I would highly recommend getting James' book. He's got so many wonderful ideas and bullets for people on how to find new beginnings after loss and how to find hope again. Thanks for the work you're doing, James. Absolutely. Thanks and, a lot. And Heidi, um, great show. And uh, I know that cognitive therapy is great, isn't it, for dealing with loss? And- I absolutely love it. That's That's kind of what help me find my way back after my darkest days mm-hmm. is is doing some reframes and restructuring on how you how you think about the loss and how you're thinking about your life at this point. Absolutely. So, yeah, it's very practical. I've I've always really liked it. So, it, James would be a great person to read his book and also to get in touch with this, with. Well, thanks for listening to the show today and we hope you'll visit us on Facebook and on our website and we will be uh, doing another show next week. You've been listening to Open to Hope Radio, hosted by Drs. Gloria and Heidi Horsley. Like today's edition, all of our past programs are available on demand at opentohope.com, along with helpful articles, videos, resources, and links to help get you through the toughest time of your life. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter and sign up for our monthly newsletter. Again, that's opentohope.com. Check it out today. Then be sure to stop by next Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time when we'll be posting another edition of Open to Hope Radio. Remember, others have been where you are. They made it through, and you can too, as long as you're open to hope.